What is good, everybody? My name is Tim Karen. This is the Performance Health Podcast. We're on web show number 11, talking about screening in a group environment. It's an important distinction because a lot of times we talk about screening off the pretense it's only going to be with one person with no real discussion on how to apply in a group setting and the solutions are not that great. So we're going to dive into that. We're going to talk about what we should look at, what we should know, what is that going to do in terms of influencing our program. So myself, Corey Hobbs, Will Greenberg, we're going to unpack all of that. If you're not a member of the PH curriculum, I highly suggest you do that at phpodcast.com. You got access to the video form minus all the other stuff that goes with it in terms of the ads, the intro, the exits you just get the real high level all the information you need and as well as you get all the resources the transcripts the notes the articles we use to come together for this whole entire web show so if you guys like what you're hearing you want to learn more and get a little bit deeper become a member of the ph curriculum at phpodcast.com you're going to get a lot out of it i guarantee it if you're listening to this podcast, that probably means you're a strength coach or want to be a strength coach. And man, do I have the resource for you. It's called How to Become a Strength Coach, Periodizing Your Career in Strength Conditioning. This is your start to finish seminal resource to get you to becoming the best possible strength coach you can ever be. You can get your copy along with access to our course at phpodcast.com. This is a must-have for any strength conditioning coach or any aspiring strength conditioning coach out there. It will not only give you a step-by-step tutorial on how to become a strength coach, it will help you optimize your career every step of the way. Absolute must-have. If you like this podcast, get the book. Okay, Tim, we've talked movement screens and I'm sure we got a lot of listeners in different settings, large groups, small groups, one-on-one settings. What do we need to consider if we're in, you know, these different situations, large, small, one-on-one? Break, us, break it down for us. You know, the, the, the top of the list is, you know, the idea of what do we need to know and how is that going to impact our programming, right? So that's the two most important questions to consider when you're doing any evaluation. But it's even more amplified when we're working with a large group. So as I start to look through a group of 100 football players and what's necessary information for me to write a really good program, but also, too, to substantiate and to support the decisions I make. So if I start to look at output metrics and we can look at wins and losses and maybe you feel or don't feel like you have an impact on that, which it's up to you and your prerogative. But the other end of it is maybe you look at other metrics like injuries during preseason camp or injuries that occur non-contact during competitive season. And you start to go, well, what impact would I have on that? And maybe, again, you don't believe in that. Maybe you're part of this, this philosophy that, hey, I don't really feel like we have an impact on resiliency and reduction of injuries, which, again, that's your prerogative. But how are you having a decision making on what exercises select and what variations of exercises select? And the most simple, logical discussion of this, what we talked about last week with our table test, this idea of if I don't have prerequisite knee flexion, how am I going to train a knee dominant pattern and trying to get a certain degree of flexion of that knee during a split squat or a squat pattern? And the same thing is going through when I'm looking at a standardized screen or a large a screen that accommodates a lot of people simultaneously is how is that information going to influence my decisions or if not, like, was I going to do the same predetermined selection of exercises, regardless of knowing whatever it is about you or not? And these are the fundamental things we got to start from, because a lot of the 
the naysayers or the folks that you get opposition from. And I've been in these conversations 10 times over, like, I would not have time. Or, ah, well, it doesn't really have an impact on what we're doing. Well, that, that could be a problem, right? That could be something as we start to break down of, yeah, if you don't feel like it's going to have an impact on what you're doing, you shouldn't do it. But the better question is, is why doesn't it have an impact on what you're doing? Like information that tells you that something might be contraindicated or really problematic over time to do at a high level is invaluable. Why don't we consider that valuable? And that's a really important thing. So it would come back from the dynamic and it's amplified from a one-on-one to a large group is one, how's that going to influence your programming? And then two, how's that going to hold some sort of standard of execution to what good programming and good execution really is? That's the bottom line. So if I'm looking at, hey, I got to be able to think about a large group training And I got to think about what decisions I need to make that's going to basically have the best impact or most residual impact on the people I'm working with from person one to 100 and having the standard distribution of impact that's going to positively impact everyone to the right side of that bell curve. Okay, well, that that takes a precedent there. But I I think the the folks that are against movement screening and tell you time or doesn't have any impact. Well, if it doesn't have an impact, then time is definitely worth it. But if it doesn't, you're right. It won't have an impact on you. So it has to start there, right? It has to have this, this form, formative conversation of, do you really use information to help you guide and influence your decisions? And, and if you don't, then you could probably just press pause and move on to another podcast that's going to be more enjoyable, right? Like I, I could just, this point, this conversation is pointless, you know, like that. You just go to a murder mystery podcast and enjoy your commute to work. Like just stop, like just delete this one and hopefully move on to the next one. Like that, that to me is the part that I have nothing to gain from telling you you should do a moment screen or not do a moment screen. And I have nothing to, nothing to really bring value to if you don't feel like it's going to have, it's worth the time or going to have a direct impact on what you do. And I would tell you that's personally sad to me that if you know something potentially is problematic or going to cause potential problems, or if you know you physically can't do it, but you still do it anyway, then that's a really different conversation that we need to probably get rid of our agenda or bias or preference or associations, this tribal mentality of like, we got to do what we've always done because what my predecessors done, you know, information is, is knowledge and what you know, something is good until you don't. And then you have to figure out what to do after that. And that's where movement screen comes in. It appraises what you need to do for the next period of time, whether it's a two to six month off season, or it appraises the impact of what you did over that past off season based off a of baseline and, or it, it, it evaluates that. And I think that's the part that's so important to really come back to is your programming really has to have a positive influence. And if you're just doing what you always did, kind of makes what your decisions you're making obsolete and not really that necessary. Yeah, absolutely. It's a huge opportunity to get ahead of potential problems before they become problems, right? Mm -hmm. And so for those who were listening, who didn't decide to opt for the murder mysteries and are still Mm -hmm. with us, what screens have you found that fit best in these categories, large groups, small groups, et cetera? So high reliability factor, right? When we think about what I'm trying to figure out information-wise, validity is the top of the line. Does it test what it's supposed to test? Is, am I supposed to get information that's valid and usable, right? That's, that's a really important aspect of testing. 
But within a group, the bigger factor is going to be reliability. Can I repeat that over a large number of tests over a large number of people? And not only a large number of people, a large number of people administering the test. There's a lot of input aspects that we need to consider. And the more there's subjectivity, there's more there's discretion, there's more there's some sort of influence from a person that has to make a interpretation of something, the less reliable it can possibly be, right? That there's a skill to this, or there's a nuance to this, or there's a variable, I have to interpret this off of some sort of criteria, like what's good and bad. It lowers the reliability. And there's a spectrum here. There's a continuum. And we talked about this with isolated joint testing and a table test is need to know information. It takes more time. It's more, it's, it's less efficient from the context of, I can't get hundred people done in 10 minutes. And there's a lot more of skill and nuance, right? Goniometric measurement is, you know, landmarks and placement or fixing joints and trying to find the angle of articulation. And that could change from me to you. Cause I could, I just don't know how to support and hold that leg while I'm looking at internal rotation or orient that leg in the right position versus the extreme other end of the spectrum, get them on a force plate, they jump and land. It gives me a number that determines their asymmetry when they're, they're loading and unloading in that counter movement job. Like that's no influence on me whatsoever. Maybe other than I have an impact on the effort that was given, like, come on, jump really high. That might have some sort of influence, but to the degree of a goniometric measurement or a gait analysis, there's a lot more open for interpretation and discrepancy between one person to the next and one test to the next from the same administer versus getting them on a force plate and just saying jump and land, you know, and that, that to me is where you really got to start to find your best avenue to get information that's going to possibly impact your program. Because if it's not reliable, it's less useful, right? And if you get into this, I do want my testing to have an influence what I'm doing. And I find that a hundred percent of my team has an asymmetry when they're jumping and landing. That's really valuable information, you know, and here's a bilateral, very easy to execute thing that anyone from ages five to 75 can do. And yeah, there'll be going to be variance in ability to jump high in certain metrics like RSI impulse, et cetera. But if they do have some sort of asymmetry when they jump, okay, well, that has an impact on what I'm doing. And maybe I need to evaluate my bilateral versus unilateral. Maybe I need to evaluate my progression. Maybe I need to evaluate my stance and position. I need to do a lot more prone, supine, side-lying, tall kneeling, half-kneeling, single-leg stance as opposed to bilateral standing. And those are the, the things that I want to know. And I want to make the right decision over across a larger group possible to facilitate and improve. And uh, the example I, I'm kind of thinking about in my head is, let's say that you work with a golfer and they just swing from their right side of their body over and over and over and over. You're going to see a natural asymmetry. And in fact, if you don't, I'd be surprised. And how should that influence your program? Like, do you crank on deadlifts and squatting? Yeah, you could argue that's getting them stronger, improve force generating. Or do you just go, I need to get them stronger, but I'm going to get them stronger to a relatively thing I can load safer over a period of time. And I'd rather have that information than not have that information from they are naturally asymmetrical and I've shown it 
I'm not trying to remove that asymmetry. I'm not to alter that movement mechanic. I just want to be able to load them safely over a longer period of time. But the same thing in football, right? If you have an offensive lineman that plays on the right side of the line, they're only play right guard. They're going to do a lot of things redundantly on that side of the line, relatively speaking, to the left guard. Or they play slot, and they just basically go in motion into the left, down, ready, set, hut, 100 times, and they develop some sort of compensatory thing to be able to accommodate that biomechanic redundancy. And then when you get them in the weight room and you go, okay, it's time to squat, clean, bench, and they have this weird, wonky kind of adjustment to their left side or they rotate or they catch with their left foot back like they're just hardwired to move with asymmetry and i'm choosing a symmetrical movement and they're going to find a way to move with their natural asymmetrical position and and i knew that because i did a force plate analysis on them and maybe i got to a functional movement screen and a, a table test and and some other diagnostics or maybe i didn't but the point being is we're gonna have these issues whether we know them or not and it's better to know than not know the only question would be is it is that information reliable and if it's not reliable then that information really isn't useful and the hope is if we have reliability then we can determine its validity and if we know that we have reliable testing and i know i've locked in standards of testing and the same testing procedures every single time it's like clockwork of like get on the plate hands on your waist dip drive jump land reset walk pause three seconds jump again reliable, reliable, reliable to the point where it's almost like robotic. And I can go, okay, I found through this very mechanical, very, really organized, very, very scripted aspect of counter movement jump on an extreme end of reliability standard. And then maybe I can get to the point where I can reproduce and scale a table test looking at hip internal external rotation. And everyone's going to have the same testing parameters and setup that we do from coach to coach and test to test. That is, again, going to be something I can interpret as valid and necessary, depending on the situation. And I think that's the part that's fun to digest and work through. And the noisy data of like, there's a lot of unreliable data inputs here. That is probably the more frustrating aspect of a person that's tested thousands of people and worked with hundreds of coaches. It's the feeling of this probably isn't, wasn't worth our time because it just simply wasn't reliable. And why I become more reliant on on non-human human error related tools and implements like force plates and Nord, Nord boards and dynamos and force frames and stuff that is basically get on there, set them up, tell them what they need to do, and then it spits out a number and I can use that number regardless of experience of myself with 20 years plus of transition experience or someone straight out of high school. And they just said, okay, I want you to just get them started as an intern and do this. And can they get them on a force plate and just give them basic level instructions and then execute? That's a good tool for me. And I can go that mm -hmm. random high school kid that started to test people for me to help me out because I have a way, way disproportionate coach to athlete ratio that's not really going to allow me to test at a high level, but I can leverage a tool like a force plate. Okay, that's important for me. Now, am I going to ask that high school kid that's an intern to go and try to do a table test? No, because that's not going to be reliable data. And I'm not going to waste the time and I'm not going to waste the energy and just going to end up being frustrated with that person. But then maybe I work in a high performance facility and hire a bunch of people with doctorates and they're the most skilled practitioners in the world. Like, all right, I can standardize and make reliable these other metrics are going to be a little bit more nuanced and skill oriented and going to be a little bit more information. That's going to benefit me in a positive way. But it goes back again too of like, if it doesn't have an impact on what you're doing or not doing, then don't do it. But if it does, and you can scale up and titrate up the intensity of those metrics based off of 
harder and harder to be reliable, you get closer and closer to whatever it is you're trying to find. It's funny that you mentioned uh, just having a high school kid being able to run the test. I actually do that. Like, all right, you didn't dress today. You're running testing today. Here you go. Yeah. Like, here's how you do it. Go. All right. Yeah. I walk away and they, they knock it out. Cause I mean, all like the tool does everything. I just need you to set it up perfectly and they, they do it every time. So it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that as far well, as you know, the users, right? The users too is another example Like your athletes and yeah. clients that are going through it. Like they, mm-hmm. if they can test themselves and you know, it's accurate and reliable, you know, that, that in terms of group dynamics, that's another really powerful tool. Yeah, absolutely. And then as far as like we talk about reliability, you look at the high performance models are really, really hot topic right now. Have you had any success integrating like ATs or other support staff to help with screens? No, I don't. I I really don't. And I think it gets into these like pissing contests of like, well, my screen's better than yours. Like I don't use the screen the same way that you do. And it goes back to scope. It goes back to this concept of, they're using it to find and discover pain and causes of pain or underlying issues that may cause pain. I'm not using it in the same way. I'm using it to find what I can do programming wise and what my boundaries are from exercise selection and how can I load it safely over a period of time. And like context matters here. And I find it's extremely, I mean, extremely wasteful to have discussion about what screen is better like it doesn't really matter it has no bearing on on what i'm doing because they're in a setting that we have different contexts all together and i think it's a nice thought to have this utopia of integration between sports medicine and performance training or strength conditioning whatever you want to classify it it just it's a nice thought but it's not really that really reasonable or 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 maybe not that justifiable because I think it's always going to get into this lens of sports medicine is always trying to discover and under unlock causes or reasons for pain. And I don't think strength conditioning is thinking that way. And as they shouldn't, they should be thinking about how do I optimize this person, but they should be aware of what are the things I can actually optimize or how do I optimize that? And if I find an exercise that's not feasible because they have restrictions on range of motion or they have some sort of aberrant motion that quite frankly is going to be a deterrent to just pure output of faster or heavier or longer, then yeah, I, I need to find a better, better solution that's going to allow me to get to those outputs. And I just, I'm not sitting there going, okay, when I hit this like point of pain, I'm like, okay, like redirect, go somewhere else where they're going, okay, let's dig a little deeper. And I think that's just, wasteful and i feel like the again the outcome how's that going to impact what you're doing if the outcome is hopefully getting someone out of pain or functioning better off of surgery yeah i have your screen do it that's not my output though my output's okay they're going to go to preseason and i want them to be at their peak physical ability so they can perform at the highest level and win a starting job and help us win some games and i think there's just a lot of context and and variance in that and I think it's okay. And I find that conversation around like, well, we need to be more integrative and the TPI of like have your network or the, the exos athletes performance of have this completely synergistic, like they use synergy when they talk in their, in their course over and over and integrated and all this stuff. And it's like, I think it's a pipe dream to be honest. Like I really do. And I think it's a different pretense whatsoever. And it's, I think the only way I would be comfortable with it is if they answer to me, not to them. And I know that might sound 
arrogant and almost to the point of maybe outside of what I should be saying out loud on a podcast. But I find like on the note of when I do integrate with these folks, they have a certain elitism that like they feel like they, cause they can get a CSCS and I can't get a physical therapy or ATC. And it's like, sure. I just didn't want to, I don't want to work with people in pain and then getting into the training is rehab. Rehab is training model. And it's like, is it because <laughs> I, my training looks a lot different than your rehab and you're using a lot of my strength conditioning tools and calling it like rehab. We used to call that prehab in the early two thousands to prevent you. And like, and I always joke of like, if I'm good at my job, you're bored. And right. that doesn't necessarily land or resonate. Well, like you shouldn't have much to do if I'm doing my job. Cause they feel like I'm putting them in a box of all they do is work with pain. I'm like, yeah, that's what you're clinically trained to do. If you wanted to be a strength coach, you should have interned and volunteered like me and moved around the country a hundred times over and sacrificed a large part of your life to get to become work with athletes in a performance model. And well, I'm, that's kind of the case too for them reporting to you. Like if I'm doing my job right, you're bored. So like mm-hmm. as we set up the hierarchy, it, it kind of makes sense. Like, all right, so I would, I'm, I'm at the top here and then like, hopefully you have nothing to do, but you should be really good when you're called upon. And then, then you can work synergistically. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're accountants. They're coming in and telling us when something's bad or when something's not going right, or we need to spend less or make more, or we can't deduct that or expense that. Like they're the ones telling us the bad news and we're the ones telling the good news. We're the, the marketing team. Like they're just going to spend and we're going to get cool things and we're improving the product. And I think there's a little bit of envy involved with that. But I, I do think when you have like a model where like I am the, the, the peak of the ape or the apex of that hierarchy. And I answer to like one person cause they're answering no wins and losses and not directly like ego and personal preference for exercises or weight room design. I think that level of like, don't forget our goal here. It's not just to like make people feel good. It's to win games and not lose games. And a large part of that is our best players play mm-hmm. and they play at a high level. And our worst players get better and hopefully contribute. That's performance. Like, and once we realize they're not in pain, it's all about figuring out what we need to do to do, to get them to be able to perform at a higher level. And it's like, like anything, having someone that's aligned with that and going, that's, that's our job. That's our job. And your job is to facilitate performance. And a large part of that is if they're in pain, I don't have clinical training to do that your job is to get them out of pain and allow me to do stuff that I can do at a higher level. And that's where I would come with like integration and having to coordinate with that. Like, cause you have a meeting, like let's do a function of movement screen with the team. Like, oh, well we got to do, we got to unpack a lot of other things. Like, no, we don't, we don't Like you do. I don't like, I, I don't need to do that. Like I don't need to discover pain or dysfunction. I just need to figure out what exercise is going to be problematic. If I was going to load it heavy or fast or over a long period of time. That's all I need to find out. Like if I was going to do a pattern and I was going to get really heavy with it or go really long with it or go for a really high velocity or speed, will it cause problems or be a decrement to performance? Yes or no. And if it's no, I'm not doing it. If it's yes, I'm doing it. I don't care about your opinion on a certain exercises. Like, ah, like I've heard every ATC PT, like, I don't like this exercise. I don't like snatch. I don't like kettlebells. I don't like... I don't like anything like, right. They always have their, their bias and preference. And it could be come from like a work with this orthopedic that had this very like incomplete knowledge about what we do. 
and form their own conclusion of like, oh, kettlebell swings are dangerous. Like, are they? Are they really? Like, how did you come to that conclusion? Like, well, I saw five people who had back pain and they told me they did kettlebell swings. So by correlation, not causation, correlation, we just classified as kettlebell swings as dangerous. And like, that's very misguided and faulty logic. And your conclusion off that is really incomplete because there's millions of people still doing kettlebell swings who are not getting orthopedic surgery. So the, the thought process of 0.0001% came to see you for surgical outcome that you might've jumped the gun and said, Hey, we should just get surgery. And that shift this like framework of, Hey, the physical therapists are now off the mindset of, Hey, that orthopedic surgeon thinks that exercise is contraindicated and bad. And then they form their conclusion and narrative off of that and trying to find solutions outside of that. And then the ATCs are like, Oh, okay, well I got to get with the strength coach and call him an idiot because he shouldn't be doing kettlebell swings. And then you get to this conversation of like, why? Why? Because this person is not even attached to the day-to-day who doesn't even see this thing and millions of people are doing this safely and effectively over a period of time. Doesn't even know me from Adam. Like, doesn't even know I can coach kettlebell swing better than anyone else or I can coach it worse than anyone else. A large part of the reason why they're bad is simply because it said, don't pick it up and route it back. Like, start your swing in a good position. That probably was 99% of the reason why those five people needed surgery. And that's going to have an impact on what we're going to do from a movement screen. And we're going to have a long conversation about we should or shouldn't do a certain exercise or we shouldn't do a certain variation of that or we shouldn't do back squats or we shouldn't go below parallel blah 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 they just have such a very incomplete knowledge of what we're doing what actually impacts that and they have no input off like the way you do it how you do it how you load it how you progress it how you regress it how you do anything like the the forcing something in a square peg round hole like it hurts like that's your problem deal with it like you know it's always like death taxes and back squat like kind of thing like that stuff is is a stereotype and an association bias that i think makes doing a screen with a sports medicine group in a group setting hard and i'll be the first to admit and you can read how to become a strength coach i was very open about my opposition to having outside influence with what I do, because I do think there's a conversation to be had about we have two different outlets and we should have integration and communication, but it doesn't necessarily need to be collaboration. And I think that's the part we get really screwed up on is when I look at a ATC and I'm like, man, I really need their input on how to do my job. Is it going to be bi-directional? Like, I don't think you should be doing ice. I don't think you should be doing STEM. I don't think you should be doing that treatment coming off ACL. Is that going to be the conversation? Because you probably don't mutually have a respect for me as you think I should for you. And that becomes the issue when we're doing a movement screen. We get in this conversation of like, you shouldn't be doing a functional movement screen. Why? Well, I don't agree with the logic behind that. Yeah, but it doesn't influence what you do, but it has a big influence on what I do. And I don't care what you think about it. It has a massive influence on the exercises I should and shouldn't do so I can load it safely and effectively and get to the outcome that I think is going to help us win games, me not get fired, and that person in front of me having the best possible chance to be successful. And that's where the, the, the thought process is, is the collaboration of like, you don't need to have an impact on what I'm doing because you went and got your CSCS because NSCA allows you to sit for the test. You are not formally trained in that. You basically just got information with no context of how to apply or understanding of what really has an, an impact on the bottom line. And I can't do your end, but I don't want to. I never did. If I did, I would have went back to school and I would have really started looking at people in pain in a different way. In fact, when it gets to pain, I'm like, find someone who can work with you. I understand scope better than potentially my counterparts. And I get this is going to be like a hot, t- hot take and polarizing, but the other end of it, it's like, Who's standing up for strength conditioning, man? Like, 
And like, I hate this idea of like, we're just simpletons and we don't really know what we're doing. And you go to any FRC conference, you go to any FMS conference, you go to any LDOA, you go to anything that's, or PRI, go to PRI. Who's in these conferences? They're all strength conditioning coaches. It's all strength conditioning. And all of them are just completely shifting to go, hey, how do I accommodate this entity that has no hands-on skills ability with scope limited to just working in the weight room? They're all transforming. And a lot of times ATCs and physical therapy will get frustrated by that. And we're not talking to them anymore, but you're not going to the conferences. You're not eating up this information as much as we are. And we are skilled, knowledgeable, and capable to be able to address a lot of movement dysfunction at a high level and really integrate that into a strength conditioning program. And when it gets to the conversation of like, hey, you should do a this screen that I do. You should look at a Faber test and look at like a potential hip impingement. Like, it doesn't seem to be within my scope. And yeah, I agree. That would be nice to know. But relatively speaking, doing exercises at a high level, this isn't a witch hunt. I'm not trying to find everyone has impingement. What I am trying to find out is can I squat or do split squats effectively over a long period of time without pain dysfunction? And if it does help me make that decision, then I'll do it. But uh, that conversation around like, we should be integrated and everyone should be in synergy and have this like very like utopian society of like, we're all in this together. We all, we're all a cog in a wheel. Like, I don't know. I, it doesn't seem to work out that way. You know, like I think, I think the fall of USSR would probably say why we should meet potentially that. And I actually wrote a lot of, the, uh, a lot of my, I guess, opposition to the high performance model within the blog and how to become a strength coach. And like, I just, I don't know, for me, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just an asshole and I don't get it. And I don't know how to work well with others. And I would reserve to write that. Like, I, I would say there's probably a lot of my counterparts in sports medicine and psychology and nutrition. Like, don't get me started on nutrition. I'm awful. Like, I don't play nice with others. But I do think there's a, and it could be my being insecure of, like, hey, I don't really have the same scope that they do. And I don't have the same skill set that they do. So, yet. Maybe that's it. And maybe I feel threatened by that. I don't know. I, there's probably a lot to unpack on that. I don't think it's that. I think I'm just pretty much my like completely blinders on to how do I win more games and not get fired? And I'm going to do what it takes to get that outcome without within like maintaining your integrity and not compromising your values and putting that person in front of you and their, their hopes and their priorities at the precedent. I think I'm that guy, but maybe, maybe there's some people who disagree with that, that I'm just kind of an asshole that would step over, step over ATCs and physical therapists to get to the credit. I, it could be perceived that way, but I just yet to see it. Sorry for the long rant on that, but I definitely no, that was think good. That was good. So we, we learned <laughs> that Tim does not play well with others. No. Uh, and my performance model sucks. Yeah, I doubt, uh, well, probably I doubt any single college environment that I worked with is probably going to listen to this. So. I can say whatever I want without, right. without consequence here, you know? <laughs> so we, you got into some roadblocks, like the reliability discussion, obviously dealing with egos with the, the other support staff in, in those situations. Have you come up with any other, or have you run into any other major roadblocks and how have you dealt with them? Retest. Mm -hmm. the, the retest of, you got, you know, the, I want to have, I have very, I'm optimistic optimistic about this is going to have a big impact on my program, but then the retest where I think myself and a lot of people fall short, which is probably the area that I'm most open to criticism on is the follow through, right? The, the mindset of, I don't need to do a movement screen because my, my programming is built off of what I perceive the movement screen is going to show me anyway. 
I think that can have an influence on you in a negative way of not retesting and seeing if you actually did have a positive impact or not. So that would be the the other end of it of if you're going to be critical of me or any of my counterparts, it's not even just the front end testing, it's the back end. It's like, how are we proving and justifying our decisions and how are we holding ourselves accountable? Whether it's internally, you know, like we had 75% of our team had this underlying issue and we got to the end of the off season, we found out we're at 30%. And if that had an impact whatsoever, right? Because that number might be meaningless, right? Was it actually impactful to the bottom line? Like when we started to do an active, do a functional movement screen, we find out that 75%, 75% of our team is asymmetrical during ASLR of a three and one. And we go through the off season, we do all this correctives, we do all soft tissue, we do all this flexibility, mobility work. We do this really good structurally balanced program. We dwindle that. ASLR score to an average of 2-2 across the board, right? We have 100% improvement just from pure effort, intensity, progression. We crack the code. And then we still have 20 hamstrings in first week of preseason. And that thought of like, if I can just prove ASLR symmetry, that I have a direct impact on injury reduction during preseason camp, and then it doesn't. Okay, well, there is information. And it could be the wrong logic. It could be maybe I just didn't do enough high intensity sprinting or maybe not enough hot change of direction work because I got complete like, all right, this is it. We found the the answer to the inner universe by fixing ASLR and we did and it didn't have a positive impact. And then I go, okay, well, how do I evaluate myself going forward? Is it like we cracked that problem? Now we're going to go on to the next problem or Maybe I had misguided logic and maybe I didn't really do that. Or maybe I didn't even make a change in the SLR. I just coached it up better during that second test. And that's mm-hmm. the part that's hard, right? It's the evaluation of yourself, whether it's internal to hold yourself to this aggressive standard that no one else will, or it's actually, hey, I made an affirmation that we're going to positively influence hamstring strains during the course of preseason camp. And here's how we're going to do it. And I figured it out. And then it doesn't happen. Who are you going to answer to? Like, does that coach now have recourse to say, I thought you said you were going to fix this. You came to me, said, I have, this is my problem. And you said you were going to come in and be the answer to it. And you didn't. Is there a recourse there? Right. And I'm in the business now where I train people and I tell them all the time, like I got two primary missions, keep you safe and get you better. And if I'm not, if you get hurt or if you don't get the results that you want, you have complete and utter autonomy to go somewhere else that can do that. Mm-hmm. And that's the challenge I give myself. And it's a big, big, audacious task. And it's a lot of reliant on them to come in consistently and give great effort and be coached. But there's also an effort of, I have a part in that equation. I can write better programs. I can coach it better. I can be more positive and influencing them to be more compliant and work harder. Like all those things I have control over. And I think that's the part that's like, just don't make excuses, right? Like don't avoid a post-test to see if you did or didn't make an influence on that. And then if you didn't, if you did and it didn't work out the way you want, we work too damn hard and we are too damn smart as an entity to make excuses. Find more solutions. You didn't experiment, you had a thought, you had a hypothesis, didn't work out, go to work. Or it did, don't become overconfident that what you do is the is the answer. You have to start from scratch. An engineer would look at it, same thing next year going, it's a similar problem, but it's a different solution. What is that solution and how do I find that problem? Test, retest. Yeah, that's awesome. Wow. I, I really appreciate that you're like, hey, find solutions. That's that's one thing I try to bring to the table is like, okay, here's a problem, but where's the solution to the problem? Because you, you can be the person who just brings up these problems, but 
Like, how are we going to address the problem? I think these would be a big part of the conversation. Absolutely. Man, awesome, man. Well, shoot, that's about it. We got Sweet Will coming up here next, so get ready. Yeah, Will always brings it. Yeah, he does, man. All right, man, appreciate it. Thanks, Tim. If you like what we're talking about here on this podcast, you're definitely going to love this next thing. It's called Strength Deficit, your seminal resource to developing eccentric or concentric ability with your athletes. We have a book, we have courses, we have everything you need to be able to implement, understand, and be the best strength deficit practitioner you could possibly be. You can get all of these resources at phpodcast.com and you'll become the best, and I mean this, the best possible strength coach in your setting. Oh, we got Will Greenberg on the call today. We're talking about movement assessment or just screening in general in a large group. Will, I'm going to hit it off with probably the hardest question you'll get all week. How are you thinking about gathering information with a large group in a small amount of time? Oh, that's a hard question. Yeah, I know. I know. That's the hardest one I've gotten all week. (laughs) Tell me I'm wrong. Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, the, the hardest thing about the large groups is... It's, it's hard to get reliable data. I mean, there's so much noise in even just a, a single data point, just because it's a human, it's the human being. They're coming in with, or do they get good sleep? Where are they in their training cycle? There's, so people are coming in from all different aspects. So now you have a large group of people and it's very hard to scale reliable, valid data for any type of screening or assessment or movement assessment. And I think the, the data points really line up, not necessarily in that moment, but over time, as you're watching that person, you're starting to get to know how they move, their history, what they're, how they're engaging with what they're doing or what they're, the information they're feeding back, how they're feeling throughout the week or the day or the, the cycle. So all, as those start to accumulate, you get, you more get patterns rather than answers of, Hey, I have to do this with this person. And this is a recipe for that, for, for everyone who has this score on their movement screen or if they move this way, they have to do this. So it's, it's a little bit of an art and a science. You know, the science is the numbers and the art is really the interpretation of those numbers. So I, I got a couple of questions and I'm going to be very strategic in answering one at a time. But it's going to go a layer. In regards to, let's just say, movement screening, what do you think is some of the hardest parts about being reliable with not only a large group, potentially a, a staff of five to 10 people. Yeah. I mean, trying, making sure that your staff or anyone that you're working with that's taking the movement screen is seeing the same thing. You know, everyone is, it's subjective in the way that you're seeing it. And you can create objective measurements of, oh, you need to get hit this depth or you need to touch this number. You know, FMS is a good example of that, of they try to make an objective of, of how someone is moving, but everyone has different body shapes, body types, limitations. And part of the FMS is weeding that out. But really, the the user error is the person watching that screen or watching someone move and how they interpret whether something is good or bad. And you can get, you know, I think people can cooperate pretty well and say, hey, this is generally good, this is generally bad. Um, But you're never really going to get truly reliable data on that unless it's, you know, unless you have a, a goniometer or you're, you're using some type of technology that's going to tell you that. And even then, I'm not so sure how, how useful all that information is because we're trying to apply that to sports generally. 
and sports is dynamic. It's chaotic. There's so many things going on. There's a perception action coupling. There's so many things that you need to interact with the environment that the way in which your hip bends or how far you can reach is, again, it tells, it's a data point, but it's never going to tell you everything. Mm. Is there a, a, a post post hoc like assessment to, to determine whether you are actually reliable or not, or is it, there's going to be a natural like deviance from what is like standard reliable testing measurement. How do you approach like the post of like, how, how accurate is this data? It's a really good question. Cause I'm not sure that I would, I would have a, a good answer that I've ever done anything similar to that. It's yeah. more, Me too. Like, to be honest, cause I'm curious yeah, about I, it. Cause you have me thinking about it. Like I said, I think it's kind of the accumulation of those data points. And I know that matters if those aren't those data points aren't as accurate as need be. But, you know, I, I think it really. It's that in that interpretation of what you kind of, you know, what you're seeing, mm-hmm. you know, and, and maybe there's discussion if you have a staff of people doing that to say, hey, this is the, not the depth that we want or that person runs in a certain way. But then again. There is no perfect movement, you know. That's that's what I'm trying to I'm trying to think through here. Is there's really no perfect movement, you know. There's a I have a player in mind who, who runs really funny. He he when I worked with him, he run, ran really funny, and he had a really big back swing on his on his on or he had backside mechanics on his leg swing. And I was like, man, you really want to change that because you know the research says you're more likely to have a hamstring pull. But when you watched him move, his feet really hovered over the ground and never moved very high off the ground. And it made him really effective at his position because he could put his feet in the ground and move wherever he wanted laterally. So the way he moved that looked really bad in terms of sprint mechanics, which may have put him at a higher risk, made him really good at his skill. And so when we're talking about movement screen, there might be an objective way to say, hey, that looks good, that looks bad, and that's how we all need to see it. But at the end of the day, I'm not sure that translates to health or performance on the field because some people are really good at what they do because they're shaped differently or that they move different and it allows them to have a better capacity to, to do what they do. Well, let's talk about something potentially that may be more associated with injury, like asymmetry. And potentially there's a reliability marker of really appraising asymmetry from left to right. Is there any like thought on looking at asymmetrical screens, whether it's on a force plate or in a movement screen, looking at one extremity at a time and using that as a proxy as, as opposed to looking at what is like standardized movement? Yeah, I do think there's more context that goes into the asymmetry. Uh, I think that if the asymmetry is causing movement mechanic breakdown like there's something there's just a hitch in someone's run in their gait if they and i think add on to that is there a previous injury there is that why there's an asymmetry is it is it significant enough that it's going to cause a potential injury because they're using their body in a way that that asymmetry is going to offload somewhere else but if it's a defensive end that only turns left and they have an asymmetry i don't know how how as concerned i am if their right side is not as strong or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever you seeing is like, what is causing that asymmetry? I think that's what really matters. Is it previous injury? Is it a, you know, do they have a herniated disc and now their hamstring, you have a sciatic nerve pain 
and and they've lost muscle mass in their right leg and their hamstring is weak, I think that's probably more of an indicator of we need to do something about this rather than, you know, a, a sprinter who has an anterior pelvic tilt and they have really tight hamstrings. Or mm. I guess if we're talking about a, you know, a kicker whose plant leg is really strong and um, their hip flexor is really strong on the opposite side. You know, there's th- these things where you're going to see movement mechanics or strengths or asymmetries based off the skill that they're doing constantly. But if we're talking about someone who's running track or someone who has to move both ways, has to sprint forward, has to do things where you need symmetry, I think that is kind of the context of where we might see that and say, this is a problem. We need to fix that. Mm. Do you ever look at potentially cooperating information of like now you're building a case of there's asymmetry, there's restriction, and these things are... I guess compounding where they're adding to the actual significance of what that is. So if they have three asymmetries in their lower extremity, whether it was like knee dominant hamstring strength or looking at something along the lines of like left, right hip flexion or hip internal external rotation, that they have multiple asymmetries that are stacking up that makes whatever that asymmetry that much more of a significant marker of risk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think you can, you can start building things to piecing things together and, and looking at what is going to be a potentially bad storm to weather. Mm. You know, if there was a metric or a formula that would tell us when someone's going to injured, that would be awesome. But it's just too, it's too unpredictable. I think all you can do. You is don't have for, that yet? But yeah, we have it it's <laughs> for sale for about a billion dollars. You know, I'll, I'll yeah. sell it. I figured out balding, injury risk, and then yeah. I had a cure yeah. cancer. So I got right. it all. Right. Somewhere in these books. Yeah. So, you know, if, if, if we have an athlete who needs to sprint really fast and we know that that requires a large excursion or range of motion at the hip and that person has weak hamstrings, let's say, let's, let's just build a terrible case study for uh, someone who has to sprint fast for long periods of time. Really weak hamstrings relative to their body weight. We can get that from a dartboard. They have poor range of motion on internal external rotation on their hips. They're, they're tight. They're bound up. They have a previous injury on, you know, previous soft tissue injury on hamstring or calf. You know, they're, they're, they're coming in under trained. That's a, that's a really bad case for, Hey, let's go sprint really fast. And let's, you know, even if it's, Hey, let's build that up. You're at a pretty high risk and there are things you can do to mitigate that risk. And so you take those screens right there that we just did, and it doesn't take much. Like you know, like I said, you did a Norboard, you, you look at their range of motion of their hips. Maybe that's a table test or a Thomas test or internal external rotation. You look at their previous injury history as they come in. You watch them move, and you're like, oh man, this person's really stiff. Well, we could probably get, we could probably train to get their hamstrings stronger. We can progress them through, you know, up into Nordics and super maximal Nordics and get their hamstring strong, knee dominant, hip dominant, depending on where their previous injury was, you can work there. You can do track drills, you know, a skips, a switches, things in the a position to, to help them dynamically get into those positions, you know, fascial stretching. There's so many things that you can do before like, Hey, let's go sprint really, really fast for long periods of time. And that's, I think part of that is, you're just, it's forensic science. Like you're like, okay, well, what's happening here? Why is there, what is there a potential for injury? Or if there is an injury retrospectively looking back and saying, 
what did we miss and what can we do for the next time? How do these pieces all fit together? But there are also times where you have that case study and that guy just goes out and sprints and never gets hurt. And somehow he's just robust and somehow his body finds ways to, to, to be capable to, to stay healthy. I'd probably guess that it wouldn't last for long if that was the, if I built that, that athlete and had them come in and, and play their sport. But you know, it's, like I said, it's unpredictable. All you're really looking for is patterns. And sometimes I think about it a little bit like risk mitigation or like an insurance company where, okay, this person, there's a really high risk here. There are some things that need to be done in order to keep that safe. It's going to be at a higher cost. And we're, we're running a risk by, by exposing them to too much. There's a, there's a whole element here of, yes, risk and predicting potential like injury. But on the other end, is there a conversation to be had about appraising your program, right? That we are all creatures of habit. We, the products of our environment. If I was going to walk into the weight room and see barbells, racks, dumbbells, kettlebells, I understand immediately where your focal point is going to be from training. Mm-hmm. Is there a non-biased assessment of movement that we can accurately appraise the effectiveness of your program and the redundancies you have with training? And does that have an influence on potentially changing aspects of your program or your facility? I remember when we were working together and, and, and you had told me that one of the key metrics of whether someone is a good strength coach is if you look around and you see that everyone is moving well in the same way without being coached. And I thought that was a really interesting way to put it. And I've always thought about that. And I, I agree with it 95% of the time. Yeah. I think there are certain cases where, you know, someone's hip sockets are built a little bit different where they can't, they can't ask to grasp squat or especially as they get older and they're beat up. It's like, it would be contraindicated to have that happen. So they might have to box squat. They might have to do something different. They might need a different bar. They might be, they might not squat. You know, there might be, because I, I, if you had asked me 10 years ago, it'd be like, oh, if, if someone can full squat and they can do that well, that's a good mm-hmm. strength coach. If they can, if they can clean proficiently from the floor to the shoulders into a full squat and stand up with the bar, elbows high, good position, that's a good strength coach. But, you know, some people are built with different limbs. Like we're not, you know, if we were running a weightlifting gym, maybe that would be the case. So I, my answer would be, I don't think, I don't think there's a, a singular non-biased movement, but I do think if I looked around a gym and I saw good positions based off how people are built, you know, we're talking about a flat back, we're talking about good posture, we're talking about knee bending in a good position, you know, full range of motion on, on chin-ups and bench press and like we're, we're looking around the room and it's like this looks like these people move well in loaded positions i will never argue against strength at length so like the longest range of motion you can creating the most amount of tension and strength there i think transfers over most to athletic endeavors because you're going to get into positions where you need strength at, at, at long range of motion mm-hmm. so i would say that would be that would be my long-winded way of saying if you're looking around a weight room and you're seeing people go to the largest range of motion that their body is capable of handling with load i think that's a pretty good pretty good program a little story here so for the folks that don't know will had the worst tissue quality 
that Charles Poliquin's ever seen in his lats. And we assessed his overhead squat. And from all intents and purposes, it was awful. I mean, one of the worst Charles ever saw as well. I did a little gua sha on him. Very novice, but apparently I'm extremely quick learner. And I was able to improve that tissue quality at such a rapid level to make his overhead squat robust and somewhat beautiful to the point where Charles better. Yeah. Charles told me great job. Amazing work, Tim. Like yeah, hundred percent, you know, like, and that, that is probably what really influenced that. Like 95% of the time, like knowing in the back of your mind that I have this, this magical ability to rapidly improve movement, like no one else in the world. And let's just say for the record that, Charles just doesn't throw away though, throw out those compliments like willy nilly, you know? So no, if anything, he's, he's looking for a dig. (laughs) So with that being said, uh, I do think there's a, a element there that we can get into this next level of kind of like looking at movement within your training and going, okay, like we're doing a good job here. And with like, I mean, we can even get to the point of looking at machines versus compound closed joint, closed kinetic chain movements. You know, is there some sort of signifier that you're looking at saying they have the the stuff or the prerequisite range of motion to go through this program? And one of the things that example being, I look at controlled articular rotations with our clients mm-hmm. and going, okay, like they're grimacing that's probably not good to do chin-ups when they're doing shoulder cars like you know that kind of thing for me is there something on your world where you're working with your guys and going okay like their their potential for today's training is going to be good or bad i think what you're describing with your cars is kind of like a daily check-in you know like where where are you Mm -hmm. and i think that can change from day to day i mean you know mostly it's no one's going to come in and be terrible at their cars and the next day be like oh man i'm i've got all this range of motion Mm-hmm. but I do think there's varying levels of that where someone's like, Hey, my shoulders feel pretty good today. Or my hips feel good on the flip side. Like, man, I feel really gunky today. Like I just, things don't feel good. You know, in sports, especially in season, you're going off the car crashes. Like, uh, Hey, my ankle's really messed up today. Okay. Well, we're probably going to find something to do that is, that's different. So it's, it's a little bit more triage. I don't, I don't think, it's as relatable because you really have to lateralize a lot mm-hmm. in season. But, you know, there are certain things like the the depth of someone's hip socks. Are they introverted or retroverted? Like, are they, do they need to be toes out or toes straight? Do they need to squat deep? Do they need to box squat? Like, what, what are we going to get out of the structure of the body? How, are their tibias really long? Are their femurs really long? You know, are do we need to change the position of the bar? That's why I really like the kabuki bars. Like you can change the the weight and where that sits. And some people feel better about that. You know, do people have really limited ankle range of motion? Do we need to elevate their heels? Do we need to put them on a on a high bar squat or a, a front squat? You know, like what's gonna put them in the best position to get the most range of motion? And then what are we really trying to get out of that? You know, like I do want a lot of range of motion, but do we want range? Are we looking for range of motion and knee bending? Are we looking for range of motion through the hips for the hamstrings? You know, where where is it that we're really trying to make a difference for for this athlete? And most of that's probably going to be based off what their position is, what their previous injury history, you know, where their body structure is allowing them to go. And I think that's all kind of the art of it is, you know, when I say the art of it, it's like how you're interpreting 
what the goal of training is. Because, you know, at the end, it's everyone's pretty much training for the same thing, but everyone has to take a little bit of a different road in order to get there. And some people's road is just going to not, end of the day, just not going to be as good. And you can't yeah. force it. You can't force that. So one of the things I think a lot about with this, because I think the reality of what we need to start to establish with these conversations is the fact that a plan is just an idea. And then the actual implementation of that plan is drastically different than the original pretense or the construct that we thought training was going to be. But the thing that I find so compelling and really interesting is how are we appraising these decisions of pivoting or shifting focal point on a micro scale to a more macro scale? Like the decision of, hey, I'm going to lateralize today based off of this, this conversation I had, ankle hurts, this hurts, or I just don't have a lot of range in this joint, or oh, man, I, they just don't have great body language or we got him on a force play or we did a grip test and CNS appears to be down. And I did that with air quotes for the people listening to this, mm-hmm. but this dynamic of we're always making these like split second micro decisions. And that's going to have an impact on overall training tonnage or overall density or systemic systemic load. And then that fractals out to a week, a month, a year. And that is the part after the fact of the, how do we appraise these day-to-day changes from our original plan based off the original goal of hopefully making athletes more robust and capable of playing for their sport, football being the case here at a higher level? Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, no right answer, like all these, no, no perfect answer. But as when I think about it, the way I frame it in my mind is kind of looking at first principles of what, what are we really trying to do? And I think right or wrong – for a long for a long time, I thought of training very much in cycles of like, oh, I have to do this program, I have to do this program, do this program. So you go accumulation, intensification, functional hypertrophy, and on and on and on and on and on. And maybe it's the setting that I'm in now where you don't really have the the setup to be able to do that. What I now look at is more: are is this person being exposed to load frequently? and that's more of the principle of like, I'm trying, okay, I am trying to make a, an adaptation of some sort. If that's my, if that's my principle is that the body is adaptable and I can make some sort of adaptation, that's great. However, when I don't have the time or capacity or the structure for, you know, the equipment available or whatever is available to say, I need to, I make, need to make this specific adaptation is, Am I getting, am I at least getting exposures frequent enough to load where my body is overcoming something? And I don't know if there's an objective amount of times that that needs to happen. You know, in my head, I'm always thinking like four sets of five is like your base. Like if you get 20 reps of something and you're, and you're exposing yourself to that twice a week, I feel like that's pretty darn good. You know, am I going to be am I going to be increasing muscle mass at a, a rapid rate? No, but in a setting where you might not have a lot of time or capacity, or you're you know competing with practice, or you're competing with other things, travel, and I mean, there's just so many variables. Is am, am I at least getting exposed to load? And what is the minimal effective dose that I can do that? And I've I've stopped thinking about it as much in programs as I have 
exposures. And similarly to eating is like how many feedings of protein am I getting instead of how many grams? It's like how many feeding am I just going to consistently be getting enough feedings of protein? It's, it's kind of the similar idea of, of <clears throat> am I being exposed to, am I being exposed to something? But it goes into this, like, I think there's a lot of folks in the world in strength conditioning that are probably still fighting to get training time in season, the various levels, right? High school, college, Olympic sport, football. And it gets into this, like, narrative of unless you can justify the training in the first place and what it's supposed to accomplish, you're going to have a hard fight against you, right? The, I work with soccer and they don't believe in training in season. And you're like, yeah, well, unless we can get training, we're not going to be able to get X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And the rationale is why that's, why is that important to soccer? And that's the part I think as we go through like a appraisal of movement and you start to look through, okay, all we're doing is a dynamic warm up before practice. And that's strength conditioning's influence on in-season athletes, which is still a reality for a lot of people out there. And you're fighting a good fight to go, hey, we got to get him in either before or after practice. Hey, ideally, we'd get him in day after a game, blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. I don't know if a lot of people either have a very sound rationale why they're training in the first place or why it's important that we get on a table and fight the good fight to go get these exposures or get these conversations in the second order of, oh, wow, I got him in the weight room two, three times a week in season and I can get him pre, intra and post-workout nutrition, which could be the difference of a two to 3,000 calories in a given week, which could be the difference to this like relative energy deficit syndrome, all these other things that we're looking at down pipe of, well, if we're going to make it to the postseason, what is that actually going to yeah. look like? And we had so many situations like that in our army with the way we structured our training to go, can we clean in November? And what does that matter? What does that mean? Is that good or that yeah. bad? Does that give me a leg up in January? Does that give us Mm -hmm. confidence is that a sign that we have a relative good marker of health throughout the course of season and you know i guess that's the the thing that you think about and i don't know if we as a whole as an industry have these like indicators and we talked about this with like mm -hmm. body composition and lean muscle mass in season of like well if they have more muscle mass that means they're not losing it so that's good yeah something worked out well whether it was a caloric surplus or appropriate amount of stress and stimulus and i guess goes into the next question of like you know, you're coming up to the the money part of the year for you. And when you're looking around, do you have something that you're indicating of like, okay, we're, we're primed right now. We're, we're in a good spot. Yeah. And <clears throat> I think the other comment I want to make that also going to lead into that answer is athletes are just, they're not robots. You know, we're, they're not based off percentages. They're not based off the, the body doesn't know that it's doing you know, one six protocol. It doesn't know that it's doing German body training. It just knows that it's being exposed to stress, Reporting. and sometimes it, it likes it. Body should. Sometimes it's a great. Yeah, it should. It's uh, you yeah. wish it did. Like, <laughs> hey, I, hey, I'm doing one six here, buddy. You know, like yeah. figure it out. But how do you just you body? You don't appreciate this a high level yeah. protocol that I'm throwing at you. Right. Like, why don't you care more? Right. And <laughs> it's just, you know, it's just being exposed to stress, and it's going to do its best to adapt to that. Yeah. And so as you continually expose it to stress, it's going to adapt. So you just continue to do that. You keep doing those exposures. But I think the human part of that, what you're, what we're talking about is like, if it's November and you guys are like, man, my wrists are really beat up and I'm, my body's sore and I'm, I'm not feeling good, man, I'm tired. Yeah. But the program says we got to clean. 
you know, is we're supposed to four sets of three today. And, you know, we're going to go 80% because you got to stay strong. It's like, well, now you're just taking principles from weightlifting and saying that it just directly applies to the, the athlete for their sport. And it's like, we probably have competing demands there. So I think the, you have to be adaptable to say their movement's going to be different on, a, on any given day. Their capacity is going to be different on any given day. There's no perfect answer for what they're, they need to be exposed to. But I guarantee if you have a good enough relationship with an athlete or you talk to them, it's like, hey, this feels really bad when I do this. Or when I leave the weight room, man, I feel better than when I came in here. I feel more prepared for practice. Okay, cool. It seems like we probably did the right thing. All right, I'm going to note that down in terms of the pattern. And you just build a pattern for your entire career of like, okay, guys are, are really beat up. Okay, we're going to take some some reps off. Do we take reps off? Do we take volume off? Or do we take intensity off? Like what mm-hmm. what's going to make these guys feel better? You know, one thing I've really changed my mind on in, in – or maybe I didn't think about it early on was like loading before practice. Like yeah. you're always saying, Oh, you don't want to get people tired, but you know, loading in ways that are non-fatiguing people feel a lot better going to practice than, than if they're just going out and all right, my leg, I feel like my legs are fresh cause I haven't done anything. And I think that's a really important point of like all load is load. Like it's, it doesn't have just cause it's in the weight room doesn't mean that's the only load you're going to put on the body. You know, you, you just want to systematically expose people to the load that is necessary for them to perform well in sports. And that might be before practice. That might be after practice. And some guys like it the opposite. Some guys hate loading their body before practice. Don't feel good. Some people do like it's, there's no perfect solution to that. Just patterns. And you help each athlete the best you can hard to do at scale, but you help each athlete the best they can to, to come up with a routine that's, that's best for them. Yeah. You know, it's funny though, because on the other end, we had the other problem of the environment really manipulated people doing stuff that probably shouldn't have been doing. And we needed just as much of a proxy to go, wow, they remember that guy told me his wrist hurt. So when guys are smacking 120, 130 kilo cleans, Mm -hmm. I have to stop that person because they will do it because the environment will manipulate them. Like just the same thing post, post game on Sunday where our captain every single week, Andrew King is like, Hey, we're doing singles. I'm working up a 200 kilo front squat. Like, okay. He wants to do it. Played 70 snaps. He had X amount of tackles for loss. And he's like, just smack some reds on each side till we get 200. And like, that's going to have a trickle down effect. But if someone has Mm -hmm. some sort of inflammation of the knee, if someone has some sort of back thing going on, that could be a decrement to the rest of the week and actually limit the performance or output. So on one end, you got to find standards to go, okay, we need to do this. Or on the other end, we need to find standards to go. We don't, we don't need to do this. And although the rest of the room wants to do it, you're not. Right. And I think that's the part as we go through all this, hopefully the, the message is coming out of what is good, what is bad. It really depends on the situation and the context, but you need to have some sort of barometer to make these decisions yeah. accurately and consistently because mm. scale is always going to crush you unless you have yeah. some sort of actual rationale to why and what you're doing. Yeah. And, and the real time barometer, I think that's a great point for uh, what we're saying here is, you know, I would say to strength coaches, it's okay to not have the perfect movement screen because there's no such thing. Like it's, mm-hmm. you don't have to do FMS. You don't have to do the CLAT test. You don't have to do any of those. All they are is data points. If you want to do them, great. It, and and take 
what you see is a grain of salt because the person you test on Monday is not the same person that you're testing on Friday. There's yeah. so many things that happen in between that they're moving differently. They're going to generally show a, a pretty consistent pattern. You know, I know that if a if a guy, you know, has a very you know very long femurs, that I'm probably not going to get a ton of deep squats out of him. Might be able to work there, but I'm you know Monday to Friday I'm not going to get two completely different things. Mm-hmm. It might take time to do that, but they're going to generally show a pattern of things that they can do well and and how we can load them, and you can be creative in the moment. But if someone comes in and has something drastically different, like, oh, my, that really hurts my knees. I have some tendinopathy in my knees and I can't squat. You know, that's that's some real-time tools to say, okay, what can I lateralize to? You know, it's, yeah. this this person is unable to do what I'm asking them to do. Well, why is that? Can I do a little bit of digging, digging in the re, in real time and say, oh, okay, you know, you're, you ran 10 miles yesterday. Why? I don't know. But now your knees hurt. We got to find something else to do. You know, there's just... Yeah. There's going to be a million different reasons why someone's movement changes. So there's no perfect movement screen or testing data. You know, even if you test the beginning of the season, who someone is at the very end of the season, completely different. Their body's completely different. You know, what what they've adapted to or what they've detrained at. You know, it's just it's not going to tell you whether or not they're going to get injured in in December if you if you test them in you know March. Mm-hmm. So it's. You know, it's, it's something just to watch in real time and know your athletes and ask them questions and their subjective feedback is probably as important, if not more than the objective measurements you get from, from testing. That's sweet, man. Awesome, man. Well, thank you so much for the insights, the knowledge, the, the wisdom. It was cool. Great. Awesome conversation, man. Really. Thank you for the time and we'll see you here next month, man. Love it. So ton to unpack. I hope you guys are really appreciating the fact that this is a tip of the iceberg in terms of information. If you're not a member of the PH curriculum, you got to go do it now. Just stop, go to the website, sign up for the membership. You get access to 50 modules. You get access to all the web shows, the video format, the transcripts, the articles, the resources, and it guides you through each step of the way. Not to mention it has a forum where you can ask questions and collaborate and interact with other strength conditioning coaches that are really eager and interested in learning. So become a member, phpodcast.com, access to curriculum, get you a ton of other information. You won't regret that. All right, see you next week.